evening, City Life Suffolk. I was telling Amanda as she was coming back after that worship wrap-up, if that had been one of my children in that circle, I'm afraid that they would have shouted, win, that they might not have been as Christ-like in that moment. So I'm not sure we have parented as well as the, uh, as the Hiltzes are doing. So, hey, I had a, a couple of giveaways I want to do. The first one is for Katie doing first-time video doing announcements tonight. Right? It's a lot of work to get up there. That's hard. And to be a teenager, so good for you. You did a really good job. You did a really good job. And, uh, and then my second one, I, I need to talk to something uh, with you about that's very troubling to me. And that's this picture here. <laughs> Is that last night I was at the Hiltz's and, uh, uh, for their annual pumpkin carving contest. And, uh, and this gentleman in the hoodie here, a.k.a. Kenny Crump, I had him hold up a picture of what he was going to carve, and he held up this cute, beautiful, child-friendly, lovely picture of Mickey Mouse, and then what he presented to the judges was something out of the book of Revelation, (laughs) I'm pretty sure, there, on the left, we called it the Demon Pumpkin, and uh, children, I'm sure, uh, had nightmares last night, and so we're going to be offering free pastoral counseling as they uh, try to recover. But my, my favorite part about this is, is that, that when he put the candle in it originally and took it up, you can see it. It's just to the right of the City Life pumpkin, right? And, and so he took it up there, had a candle in it, right? It's the demon pumpkin. And as soon as he set it down next to the church pumpkin, the candle went out. We're like, come on, right? That's good. How awesome is that? And so is Brian, is Brian Vogel here? I don't think Brian is here. So I'm going to give this to Amanda to give to him because he did the City Light Pumpkin, didn't he? So that's a little, a little shout out to Brian for the, the, uh, the City Life Demon Quenching Pumpkin. That, uh, so, and then my last giveaway is to Ozzy for the, uh, the Sunflower Pumpkin that I don't have a picture of. That uh, I know when he finishes it that he's still working on it. He can put a picture of it. And uh, there was some serious pumpkin carving going on right there last night. Serious. I, d- I wanted to give an award to myself for the cupcake pumpkin. But if you want to see a picture of that, you can, uh, you can go online. So, hey, I'm excited to be here tonight to talk about uh, this mission that we feel like God's given to us. I know Pastor Justin's been talking about it here uh, at the Suffolk campus, and so he's, as Anthony said, is there, and I'm here tonight uh, as we continue our conversation about unity and how that fits into this mission statement. Uh, but I just want to review it in case you're visiting with us or if you've not been tracking with us in this series. Uh, this is the new mission that we feel like really God's given us as a church is to build the church Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save. And so every week we've been talking about this mission, where it comes from, how it breaks down. Uh, We've been teaching off of this chart uh, from our Legacy Weekend just uh, several weekends ago back in September. I'm not going to work through it again tonight, but in case, again, you're visiting here, uh, you can go onto the podcast and look for the message. It's called Legacy Weekend, uh, or you can pick up any of the messages that both Pastor Justin and I have been doing, and we've been working through and talking about this chart uh, each in, in each series. Every part of the message has been one of these boxes, 
but we've also, for this series, we, we've said that, hey, there's parts of who we are as a church, and we want to explain how it fits into this mission. There's parts to who we are as a church that have been a part of who we are from the beginning that are not getting displaced. This is getting added to it. And one of those is a saying that we've had here for many years, and it's that your family from the first hello. This is an important part of who we are. It's part of the culture of our church. It means that when you come in, even if you're a complete stranger, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what you believe in the life that you've been living, we want you to feel like there's a place for you here. It's not just about hospitality. It's about our commitment to unity. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, why unity is an important part of the fulfillment of this mission. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And I'm going to read verses 18 to 23. Luke 7, 18 to 23. It says, The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples. Right now, John has been arrested, just to fill in some of the stories, been arrested by Herod. He's in prison. Some of his disciples came to visit him. And he sends his disciples back to Jesus. And he says, I want you to ask him this question. Are you the Messiah that we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Now, John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist has sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we expect someone else? Now, listen to what Jesus says. At that very time, at that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases and illness and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, The deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. This is an important text for us because it's Jesus teaching the church that outcomes matter. He's teaching us that just saying it isn't enough. There should be fruit, there should be results that are in keeping with what you're saying. So meaning as a Christian, if we say that we're Christians, outcomes matter. How do you live? The choices that you're making, the attitudes that we let well up in our hearts, moral decisions that we make. Jesus is saying, if you're going to claim to be a Christian or if you're going to claim to be a church, there should be outcomes that are in keeping with the claim. So if one of these young people over here comes home and says, I'm a good student, if you're the parent of that child, you're going to say, let's talk about your grades, right? Let's talk about your behavior, Let's talk about your attitude when you're on the field playing sports. If you say that you're a good student, are there outcomes that are in keeping with the proclamation? You might say that you're a good employee, and we would say, give us your boss's phone number. Let's talk about your productivity. Let's talk about your last few performance appraisals. You might be here, and you might say, I'm a good husband. You might say, I'm a good wife, and we would say, outcomes matter. Let's look at the countenance of the face of your spouse. Let us spend some time in your home to see the dynamics that are there. People are coming to Jesus and saying, are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers with this simple statement, outcomes matter. Don't just listen to what I've said, but look at what I am doing. So for us as a church, as a leadership team, we're saying outcomes matter to us. We just don't want to say we're going to be a church that's building something that Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save. We want there to be outcomes that are in keeping with what we're trying to accomplish. If you've been coming for City Life for any amount of time, you see banners that are 
out there that say encounter, embrace, and engage. These are three important outcomes for us. We want to be a church when people come in that they experience the living presence of God. That God just isn't an idea, that he's not a doctrine or just a doctrine or just a belief, but he is a living, loving presence, and you should feel his presence in a church that's being built after the model of Christ. Our people are encountering God's presence. Are people experiencing God as a living presence and an active voice? Is there a sense of growing intimacy between God and people who call City Life Church their home? This is an outcome for us. We're saying if we build the church that Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save, then we're going to be a place where you experience his presence. The next one is, are people finding an appetite and a passion for church community? This is the idea of embrace. Are people building meaningful relationships with each other? Are people who have been disappointed and hurt by churches in their past trusting the church again? That's the kind of church that we want to be. A church where people encounter God's presence and a church where people embrace God's family. Are people being inspired to believe that God created them for unique abilities because of their unique abilities and spiritual gifts and life experiences to build his church? Are people getting a vision for telling people about the heaven that awaits us? Are people devoting their lives to an eternal purpose? If we're building the church that Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save, we're going to be a place where people encounter God's presence. We're going to be a place where people embrace God's family. And we're going to be a place where people engage in God's missions. Outcomes matter to Jesus and they matter to us. And what we're going to talk to you tonight, which is what Pastor Justin talked to you about last night, last week, and what he's preaching to the Newport News Campus about this weekend, and I'm going to share this message with them and again in a couple of weeks, is that unity is an outcome for us at the City Life Church. That if we're going to be a place that is a church that looks like what Jesus intended to be built, then it is going to be a place of unity. That it's a measure, that it's an outcome. We can say that we're the church of Christ. But then people should come in and they should be able to ask us some questions. And one of the questions they should be able to ask is, is there unity at your church? So let's talk about how the Bible defines unity. John 17, 21. Jesus says, I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one. And as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so the world will believe that you sent me. This is an important part for us in this conversation about unity. Jesus is saying that the only way that we can be fully in God as the church that he intends to build is for us to be aligned with one another. When you look at this prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, he's praying that his followers are going to experience oneness, right? They're going to experience unity. And then Jesus defines that by saying that, that, that when you experience unity, it's going to look like the kind of unity that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit share. But then he goes on to say, then he goes on to say that when you experience this kind of alignment and unity, then you will experience something that feels like being in God. And that when you're in God, right, when you're in God, and unified, the fruit of that is that you will begin to convince the world that Jesus is real, which goes back to our mission that we want to take as many people to heaven with us as we can. The only way that we can be fully in God as the church that he intends is to build is, to build, is for us to be aligned with one another. Jesus is saying here in John 17, we can't be in him unless we're with one another. We can't be in him unless we're with one another. 
And the only way that we're going to convince the world that Jesus was sent by God is for us to be in him, meaning that when people are around us, they experience the living presence of God. So let's talk about what unity is not. Can we talk about that? Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is when a group, whether it's a church or any other organization, says to people, you can come in different, but you better become like us sooner rather than later. Uniformity is you can come in with your own ideas, you can come in with your own preferences, you can come in with your, your, your own cultural norms, but at some point you've got to get on board with the rest of who we are. That's uniformity. That's not what the Bible calls unity. Now, this is a big word, but this is another thing that unity is not. It's homogeneity. Homogeneity says you can't even come in unless you're already like us. Homogeneity, right, if you remember high school, science, homogeneous, right, everything is the same. Homogeneity is a church or an organization or group that says if you even want to come, even if you just even want to just to be around us, you've got to be like us from the very beginning. We're, we won't even wait for you to change. You're either like us or you're not, and if you're not, you can't be a part. That's homogeneity. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not homogeneity. And unity is also not inauthenticity. Inauthenticity, which happens a lot in churches, is that people go along to get along. They have different ideas. They have different beliefs. They, they have different things that they would prefer. But the social pressure to be like everyone else is so strong that they are afraid to share what's really in their heart because they don't want to be rejected. And so they go along to get along. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not homogeneity. And unity is certainly not inauthenticity. Listen to this. Biblical unity is when different-minded, different-gifted, different-looking, different-living people come together for a common eternal purpose. Let me read that again. Biblical unity is when different-minded, different-gifted, different-looking, different-living people come together for a common, eternal purpose. Anybody know Chris House? Come on, leads worship here every so often. Our worship and creative arts director been a part of our staff for about five years. Listen to this definition he has. I love for unity. He says, when diversity is celebrated, harmony is established, and unity is achieved. When diversity is celebrated, harmony is established, and unity is achieved. Let, let, me, let, me, let me give you a definition that I like to share with people about what unity is. Unity is when absolute commonalities transcend relative dissimilarities. Let me tell you what that means. It means that you can't make things that are supposed to be preferential and relative for one person to another an absolute that you force on others. But by the same token, you can't take things that God intended to be absolutes and make them relative, because then you become an environment that is permissive. And what happens in too many churches in their pursuit of unity is they let the pendulum swing too far to the other. So if you're a church that allows the pendulum to swing all the way over to everything's an absolute, then you end up in an environment that is very legalistic. And some of us who have been around church for any amount of time, we've spent time in environments like that. They're wounding, they are hurtful, they are controlling. It's because they're taking things that are supposed to be preferential. They're taking things that are supposed to be relative from one person to another and saying it should be this way for all people. Now, the pendulum can swing to others, and 
we've been in churches like this before too, where nothing is an absolute, where everything is a choice. And now you're in an environment that is absolutely permissive, and it's just whatever you feel is right in your own heart, then you're free to do it. True biblical unity understands the difference between things that are relative and things that are absolutes. Let me give you an example of some things that are absolutes. How about the Ten Commandments? If Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, that list will not change. It will not change. What you find on that list, the Ten Commandments, those are moral absolutes for all people for all time. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you've never read that, give that a read tomorrow afternoon. The Sermon on the Mount. These are moral absolutes that Jesus says for all people for all time. These are boundaries that you should not cross. Now, what are some relatives? This is a relative right here, a pew. Now, you might say, if it doesn't have pews in it, it's not a church. Or you might say, right, one of these over here, you might say, I don't want to go to church unless there's chairs, right, because we need to be more modern. And what I would say to you is you've just stumbled onto something that should be relative, You might have a preference for pews. You might have a preference for chairs. In fact, people in this room might be divided on what they prefer and what we would say, you know what, it's okay. You've got to make room for the preference of the person that's next to you because it's not a matter of what's right and what's wrong. You might say, I don't know if one of these books is a hymnal or is it a Bible. Uh, Worship, I'm assuming this is a hymnal. You might say, I would prefer to not go to a church who doesn't sing out of one of these books, right? And I would say I would prefer to go to a church that sings like we sang. But neither of those is right, and neither of those is wrong. It's a preference, and both are good, and both are godly. Now, you might say, well, Fred, if, if you're really pursuing unity at the City Life Church, then if you're saying both of those are good, then why don't you do more hymns and less modern worship? And my answer to that is because our music belongs to our young people. For us, it's what we call a generational tether. And so if you want youth to be here when it's time to give them the church, then you've got to let them own some things now while they're young. And so for us, that's our music. So we say we're going to defer, right? Even if our preference is this, we're going to defer to their preference because we want them to have a sense of ownership. Now, you've got to make sure that you differentiate between what's an absolute and what's relative. How about church structure? How about how you're organized? How about titles that you use? How about some doctrinal beliefs that you might have? Everything that you believe about Christianity can't be an absolute that you force on other people. There's got to be some things that we share. There's got to be some ground that we won't budge on. The divinity of Christ, the efficacy of the cross, the resurrection of the dead. These are things we're saying, no, these are cardinal doctrines for us. But when you get to the book of Revelation, right? there's all kinds of ways to interpret how it's going to turn out. We just say we know that Jesus wins in the end, and we're good with that. But there's all kinds of different sound theological paths that can get you there. And if you're not a church that understands the difference between doctrines that are not negotiable and doctrines that you have to be open-handed about, then you're not going to be a church where you experience true unity. 
Let me share this thought with you. Unity is not sameness. Unity is togetherness. Unity is not sameness. Unity is togetherness. Sameness should not be based on who we are, but it should be based on who we serve. Sameness is not based on who we are. Sameness is based on who we serve. As devoted followers of Christ, what ultimately brings us together is Jesus. That he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, and that he is the Lord of our lives. And if we can agree on that, what I would challenge you to believe is that we can find a path forward on everything else. That Jesus wants us to come together, align with each other, differentiating between what's an absolute and what's relative. And if you follow that, you know what you end up with? You end up with a room of people that are really different from each other. You end up with a room of people that I think the Bible would say is diverse. Listen to these verses in Acts chapter 2. It says, They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Now, what is this text about? This text is about people gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The baptism of the Holy Spirit right, is come. The disciples are filled with the Spirit. They're singing. They're worshiping. And then as they're singing and worshiping, they're creating such a ruckus. They're creating such noise. They're creating such a, a rowdy environment that all the people that are in the city around them hear them and begin to gather outside the room where they're having church. And all of the people that are gathering are from all different parts of the Middle East. Listen to what it says. Here we are, and then it lists the nations. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus, the province of Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things that God has done. And they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. And I think one of the things that it means is that God is saying to us that as a church, you should look like the city that you're in. Because what you find in the Jerusalem church is that they looked diverse because Jerusalem was diverse. Now, we're talking about ethnic diversity. We're talking about cultural diversity. And we're going to talk a little bit tonight about all the other kinds of diversities that there are. But for this particular text, I think the reason why the church was birthed in Jerusalem here during the Feast of Pentecost, but because it was because like most feasts, it had an international draw that people from all over the known world would come to celebrate this Jewish tradition. And I think God picked that moment for the church to be born because he wanted to give us a vision of what churches were supposed to look like forever. That they're supposed to look like people from all over the place especially if the city that you're in looks like people from all over the place. So we say as a leadership team, we know that the Suffolk campus 
is going to look different from the Newport News campus because the makeup of Suffolk in this region is different from Newport News in our region. So we're saying as a standard, as we plant campuses going forward, we want the church to look like the city that it's in. It's going to be hard for some campuses or some churches, even churches that are not city-like, but just churches in the area, it's hard for them to compare themselves to the diversity that some churches have because the demographics of where they live are different from those demographics. So your standard can't be what the churches in the other city. The standard should be is what's the demographic makeup of the city where you are? The church should look like the city that it's in. And we're committed to being that here at City Life. Now listen to this for diverse congregations. Diverse congregations are the result of a refusal to have a singular ethnic cultural dominance that becomes a mandated absolute for all. It means that as a church, you have to recognize that there are things that you prefer because of your ethnicity. There are things that you prefer because of the home that you grew up in. There's things that you prefer because of the cultural norms that you've embraced because of the environment that you've been a part of. And that you can't take those things that are cultural norms and make them spiritual absolutes that are forced on all people. That can be styles of worship. That can be different ways that churches are structured. It can be the vernacular and the way that we talk to each other about our relationship with God. If you've ever spent time in missions, if you've ever been on a missions trip, right, you step into an environment that's a different culture with different people who have different cultural norms. And you might have felt out of place there, even though you believed all the same things they believed, but their church experience was an expression of the culture that they were. And we have to be willing to acknowledge and admit that the churches that we create and the churches that we build oftentimes are a reflection of the cultural norms that we share. Let me just give you one in particular. I can speak to this one with authority because I am he. White cultural dominance. It's male-dominated, emotionally reserved, rigid structures, quiet worship, analytics-driven, and overly time-conscious. Now, you can fill in that blank with some other ethnicity, cultural dominance, and you're going to get a really different list. You're going to get a different list. And what we have to be willing to say, we have to be willing to understand, is that sometimes unintentionally we create a culture that is a barrier to other people because it's unfamiliar to them. Listen to Acts 15, 19 to 20. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. Now, I want to talk about this verse in a couple of different ways. The first thing I want to say is that if we were to come up with our own list. Let's say we were to just in church now and order pizza and just hang out for a little while. We were to say, hey, let's just spend some time brainstorming. If we had to give a person who was unfamiliar with Christianity a list of four things that we would say, if you don't get anything else right, get these right. 
we're probably not going to include a lot of the things that are on this list. Are you with me? Right? I mean, sexual immorality, that's going to be on my list. I don't know if it's going to be on your list, right? But that can be part of our conversation. Is Do you see that as an absolute or not? For us, it is. But we're probably not going to say, hey, you know what? You, you probably shouldn't drink blood. Because I don't know about you. I'm not finding that in the grocery store when I'm walking through the aisle. That's not part of our culture. But for them, 2,000 years ago, it was serious business because paganism and idol worship was a huge part of society. And it was one of the things that Christianity was pushing back against. So even what you find, things that are moral absolutes, they are not as important as they once were because it's not the struggle that society now has. It's fascinating to me. Think of all the things that Jesus taught. If you were to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and make a master list of everything that Jesus said, do this and don't do that, do this and don't do that, they distilled all of that down into this one little tiny list. Why would they do that? Because they're trying to help the church to understand everybody can't believe everything that Christianity is from the first day. they got to start somewhere. And then it's a journey. And then as they move through that journey, that list is going to get added to. But if you put the wrong things on the list from the beginning, meaning that if you make things that are cultural norms an absolute, you're going to create a barrier that's going to be too high for other people to climb and really shouldn't climb that's going to keep them from starting the journey to begin with. right? Because the reason why they had to make this list is because they had to have a meeting with the Council of Jerusalem. And the reason why they had to call a meeting is because there were some troublemakers who left the church of Jerusalem. Imagine that, church people causing problems, right? They left the church of Jerusalem and they traveled north to this town called Antioch. And the reason why they went to Antioch is because we would use these words in our modern day vernacular, that there was an incredible revival that was going on in Antioch. Because there was this guy there named the Apostle Paul, this dude by the name of Barnabas, and they were preaching the gospel, and people were coming to Christ by the hundreds, if not the thousands. And you know what they weren't doing? They weren't making all of these foreigners embrace the Mosaic law in order to be a Christian. And so these two people from the Jerusalem church went up there into their services and began to say to people, you're doing this wrong. You, people, people can't be Christian and not be Jewish. And so they started meeting with people, right? Right, this sounds like it happened, right? This is, this is modern-day church right here, right? They begin to create camps and to, to create factions, and they begin to preach against what the leaders that were there. And, and Paul and Barnabas were like, this is, this is messed up. Go home. So you know what Paul and Barnabas did? They said, let's work it out, right? They didn't get, they, they didn't get into a fight. They, didn't get into, they said, let's work it out. And so they left with the people that came. They went back to the church of Jerusalem, and they presented it to the elders. And the elders made a decision on that day. People do not have to become Jewish before they become Christian. Now, you want to talk about a controversial ruling, right? You want to talk about turning the church on its head upside down 2,000. You know, I'm telling you, there were a lot of people that left Christianity on that day. A lot of people that left Christianity on that day. What were, the, what were the elders saying? The elders were saying, do not 
take things that are culturally important for us and make them absolutes for everyone. Listen, listen, and listen to the reason. It's so it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's not saying, hey, we're going to have to be open to some moral compromise here if we're going to reach the world with the gospel. We're going to have to navigate, you know, we're going to have to make room for some, some things. That's not what they're saying. They're saying keep the absolutes absolutes and keep the things that are relative relative. And they're making the decision, which is in keeping with the entire rest of the New Testament, the Mosaic law and ceremony is not something that's going to be mandated upon people. It's just the principles that we're going to carry forward. And different cultures are going to choose to express those principles in different ways. We must stop letting secular cultural norms become barriers to diversity that is necessary for biblical unity. Let me read it again. We must stop letting secular cultural norms become barriers to the diversity that is necessary for biblical unity. There's socioeconomic cultural dominance churches can suffer from. That's a real thing. There's generational cultural dominance that churches can suffer from. You know what another one is? There is political cultural dominance that churches can suffer from. Now, this might be hard for you to believe, but both Republicans and Democrats can both go to heaven. (laughs) And Libertarians and people from the Green Party. I know. Heresy. Some of you are thinking, I can't go to this church anymore. I can't, I can't go here. I can't go here. If you're not careful, and too many churches suffer from it, but we're not going to suffer from it here at the City Life Church, let's let the gospel be transcendent to our political affiliations. And let's have conversations about our political beliefs. Let's have conversations about candidates that we support. Let's have conversations about, about, about certain platforms that are important to us and are meaningful to us. And many times they are moral issues. But I'm just here to tell you both sides have things that they support that are moral. And both sides have things that they support that are immoral. There is no perfect political party because they are all people that make them up. And we're going to say we're going to be a church that we're open to your political ideas and we're open to your political leanings because we are not same based on who we are. We are the same based on who we serve. And Christ has got to be transcended to our political affiliations. You cannot read 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4 and not come to the conclusion that homogeneity, uniformity, and inauthenticity are completely ineffective for fulfilling God's purposes. You can't. One of the reasons why 1 Corinthians 12 is in the Bible is because of messages like this that we're preaching. One of the reasons why Romans 12 is in the Bible is so we would preach messages like this. One of the reasons why Ephesians 4 is in the Bible is because of messages like this. Paul is saying to us through those texts as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit 
that you're never going to accomplish God's ultimate plan, which is to reveal Christ to the world by the building of the church unless you make room for people that are different than you because you need their difference to accomplish everything that God wants to be done. I was joking with somebody during the greet time. We all come to churches for different reasons. I came here tonight to preach, but I also came here tonight to ask for forgiveness for the anger that's going to be in my heart tomorrow because me and my two sons are going up to the Redskins game. It's the same trip every time. We have such a great time going up, and then we're just always mad on the way home. But we're a little bit masochistic, and so we make the trip every year, even though we know what the outcome is going to be. You, You... at some point, at some point, you have to look into the world around you and see that there are biblical principles that are happening all the time. No sports team is ever going to win if everybody on the team is the same position. They're not. There's no company, no company that you work for is ever going to be effective and successful and profitable if they hire the same person to fill all the positions. We look around our natural world. We, we understand it. It takes different people with different gifts and different abilities and different perspectives. And you know what God says? My church is no different. My church is no different. You've got to make room for people that are different than you if you're ever going to accomplish what I want you to accomplish It takes a diversity of gifts and callings and perspectives and attitudes and and even different political affiliations because even that brings different perspectives that we all need to temper one another. God says, you get one shot at this life. One shot. And we want to take as many people to heaven with us as we can. And so we want to build a church that Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save. And the only way we're going to ever be that church is to be the church that is at the center of God's heart. And Jesus already told us in John 17, the only way a church can be at the center of God's heart is if it's unified with one another. And all the rest of the Bible tells us there is never biblical unity unless there is first diversity. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. So when we say that your family... From the first hello, we're not just talking about people. We're talking about churches, too. We're talking about churches, too. Some of you would never feel comfortable in the church that meets here on Sunday morning. That's a Lutheran church. And you know what? Some of them wouldn't feel comfortable here. And it's the same with the Newport News campus. We were just gifted that incredible building. There's four four churches, four of us. Us and three other churches sharing that facility. And you know what? All of us who choose the church that we go to, it's because it resonates with us. And we don't go to the other churches because they don't resonate with who we are. But if you're not careful as a church, you can be a church that celebrates diversity in your congregation. But then you can adopt a sense of arrogance about who you are as a community relative to other churches that are out there. And what we're saying is this idea is that your family from the first hello, it's beyond people. It's beyond people. We want to be a church that says to other churches, we agree on more than we don't. So let's work together to reach the world. Stand with me. Father, we thank you 
that you're willing to challenge our biases. Thank you that you're willing to, to, to challenge us in the things that cause us to gravitate to people that are only just like us. Father, we stand here tonight and we thank you for not being to us we are often to other people because there is nothing about us that's like you. And yet you sent your son to die for us so that we could be born into your family. Father, help us as we look out into this world. Help us as a church here in Suffolk and in Newport News as we look out into our world that we're not just going to look for people that are the same as who we are because they look like us, God, but we're going to look for people and align with others who serve our King. And that together with them, with them, that we can build the church, Jesus, that you envisioned so that we can love the world that you died to save. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken.